You're listening to How Do You Decide with Megan Stafford, a podcast that explores how the decisions we make shape us, the crossroads, the difficult choices, and how sometimes the smallest decisions can have the biggest impact. Join me as I meet everyday Aussies and find out about their lives, the decisions that changed them, and how they coped along the way. This week on the podcast... Crazy to think that the gear that the mind medic brought was the gear that I needed for the the situation I was in, whereas the doctors didn't bring any gear that would have would have helped me at that situation. So, you know, it's it's just incredible the way things play out. That's Rob Cook. In 2008, Rob was in a helicopter accident on a remote cattle station in the Northern Territory, Supplejack Downs. And when I say remote, I mean remote. You'll have to drive 1,500 kilometres to get groceries remote. That's the distance of a round trip from Supplejack to Alice Springs. So you can imagine the tension when Rob found himself in a crash chopper, paralysed, and unbeknownst to him, a C4 quadriplegic. Making decisions suddenly became very important to all involved. Rob's life, after all, was on the line. You'll hear about those decisions and the accident in more depth throughout this conversation with Rob and his wife, Sarah. We also cover Rob and Sarah's relationship, from high school sweethearts to business partners and everything in between. Their relationship is founded in friendship. They like each other a lot, which is a bonus when you love someone, and especially when you have to face a dynamic shift like they did on that day in 2008. When Rob had his accident, their sons Braxton and Lawson were only two and six months old respectively. Since then, the family has accomplished a lot. In 2011, Rob drove his wheelchair the 730 kilometers from Supplejack to Alice Springs, becoming the first quadriplegic to cross the Tanami Desert in a 4x4 wheelchair. He wanted to prove he had the same determination and commitment that he had in the rodeo arena and on the station before his accident. More than that, Rob was also raising money for the global travels he and Sarah would undertake later that year as a recipient of a Nuffield scholarship. Rob's research focus was looking at ways to encourage injured producers and farmers to remain actively involved within their business. True to his own aim, Rob and Sarah moved to the coast near Bundaberg and opened a butchery in conjunction with their own beef operation. The butchery business is now closed, but Rob and Sarah are still heavily involved in all things ag and still run their own herd. In this conversation, we didn't even get to cover those achievements, but it's okay because Rob and Sarah wrote a book, When the Dust Settles, which you can purchase. I'll tell you more about that after this episode. For now, let me hand it over to Rob and Sarah, who begin by talking about how they met. Rob and Sarah Cook. Uh, we started playing footy, my brothers and I, and, um, and then a few of the different representative teams and that sort of thing basically introduced me to one of Sarah's brothers, her elder brother. So, you know. And weekend f- sport, so it was all play, all the little towns would come to Miles, that was where you went to play netball, football, or anything. Mm, so. so I got to meet the Cannings through, yeah, through footy, through sport. Yeah. And then it wasn't until. Years later, I didn't really know Sarah as a kid. I was too worried about horses and football and all the other fun and games. And then when we got into high school, I, I met Sarah. And we were always just good friends, really, through school. Mm. There, was, there wasn't really, you know, any, any romance at all. N- nothing to write home about anyway. Until the late night calls? Oh, yeah, we, towards, like, when I was in grade 10... We, we, I think, so back in our Sarah day, we used, over the phone. Yeah. yeah. 
you used to have to ring and get past whoever answered the phone on the other end. So you'd have to pluck your courage up before you'd ring some random boy because you'd either get their parents or... But um, we were friends. We did a lot of activities at school that were similar. I was friends with his older sister who was at school. I guess we moved in the same sort of circles during our yeah. lunch breaks. And... We are very similar, very yeah. similar you know, upbringing. And, yeah, so we were always just pretty good friends yeah, through school. Rob left school at the end of grade 10 and during the holidays, yeah, it would have been a phone call probably with some friends and I on the other end. And that was probably our distance dating starting then, setting the precedent, but five days, was it? Mm. I don't so know. So we that, yeah, it was, a, it was a big romance for five days. <laughs> and I think we spoke maybe twice or something. So probably the, the third phone call was the phone call that I got saying, um, yeah, we're moving to the desert. I'm in Mount Isa, so we probably should break up. So that was the extent of that. Yes. Well, Which was a really big deal because it was just myself and mum and dad, um, you know, when the old man and mum decided we were going to at least attempt this idea of going to the Territory. And, and um, you know, this was all pre-mobile phones. And, and uh, my old man, was a, he was a pretty astute businessman because he had a bag phone. And anyone back in them days that had a bag phone... They were really important people, which was just comical because I remember when Dad first bought it, it it was almost hilarious. But it's a big leather bag, you chuck it over your shoulder and then, yeah, it's almost, you still got to wind it up and get the power and everything else into it to, to make a phone call. But so, uh, and of course, I was never allowed to use the bag phone because only special people could use the bag phone. And anyway, when we got to Mount Isa, uh, we were fueling up and and Dad went into the servo to pay for fuel. And, and I was talking to Mum about um, this girl that I'm never going to see again. And she said, quick, borrow Dad's bag phone and ring her and tell her you, you're all over Red Rover. So I did. Mm. So I did get to use the bag phone. That's mm. amazing. But we um, kept in touch, as did most of the other girls that were in your grade. Rob was a good letter writer. And the mail phone back then, was it monthly for you guys? Yeah, once we got out of the station, yeah, it was monthly mail. So we'd write letters and then you'd sit and wait for another one to come back and Rob yeah. was a good letter writer. Yeah, so we, we always in kept touch. in touch. We, there was nothing, nothing happening, um, but we kept in touch and then it wasn't until about... Um, your grade, so Rob's later. class that he would have graduated with, you were asked to come back and partner a friend. I did, yeah. And I partnered another friend a year older and um, yeah, we sort of caught up then, I guess. Mm. Hit it off, yeah. Sarah, Sarah had look. I I came back single after a few years being in the, in the desert, and um, and uh, yeah, I, it was probably when I seen Sarah at a rodeo, um, the local rodeo. I went there riding steers and broncs, and and um, and I seen this this pretty well endowed Sheila with little tiny little tiny bum, and and um, yeah. So anyway. He wants to that say was, little waist, big boobs, don't uh, you? Yeah, I did, yeah. She, <laughs> she was like the pin-up girl of, of country. So, yeah, so then that's when the hunt really started. And so mm-hmm. how did that go, the hunt? If you're, you were heading back to the desert, I, I presume? Yeah, well, see, the thing with a hunt is um, actually catching your prey is, is quite easy. It's drafting out all the other hunters. Um, hunters and gatherers. Yeah, so the, uh, catching the prey was the easy yeah. part. It was... It was just removing all the other hunters from the picture, but yeah, once I managed to do that, we were we were right. Yeah, so we 
we started dating and and um so rob during yeah. the wet season he would come over and visit and stay for a bit of an extended rob still had a sister living miles at that stage yep so you sort of came and had a base to go to and we had a lot of mutual friends in the early days so yeah we all sort of just caught up and hung out and and um we probably yeah it wasn't until we got started and... then that we um that you you decided to move out to the territory as well yeah so i um so that was probably for me the start of grade 12 end of grade 11 um and rob went back to the desert and so the letter writing began again and we'd sort of go probably three and a half months and then i got on a bus and traveled all the way from delaca to alice springs as a 17 year old my mum must be very brave <laughs> very brave and um, so I landed in Alice Springs and then got on the mine plane at the time, a little tiny plane, first flight, I think, ever, into the desert. And then, um, yeah, waiting at the end of the plane was Robbie. Yeah, and which was, was fairly easy first. at the time. But when you compare it to what 16, 17-year-old kids are doing nowadays, it's it's pretty remarkable, really. When and you I didn't, I knew of Rob's family, like I knew his sister, but she wasn't there. So I sort of knew of and yeah, so out to the middle of the desert, most remote cattle station, and um, probably the happiest day of my life. There was a lot of coming and going for a lot of years, but it was yeah, as far as being a distant relationship, it was probably as distant as you could get. But we kept in touch on the phone, and I think I was allocated about forty-five seconds every night. Yeah. To make a telephone call back in them days, and we laughed because phone calls back then were quite short and sweet. And if you weren't being so sweet, you'd have to just hang up and go, well, we'll see what the next yeah, couple we'll of days will see. We'll try again in a couple of days, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not real happy with you right now, but anyway, we'll talk later. And back then, times at the station were a lot different, um, whereas um, the last few years there's two phone lines now, so you couldn't mm. keep the business line hooked up. So we often watched Rob's younger siblings kick back on the phone for like two, three hours, and we just quietly smile. The older siblings knew the difference. It was funny because one telephone call, um, there was a lot of action at the station at the time and I, I was able to sneak a quick call in and, and Sarah made mention. She was just, I said, what are you up to? And she said, just laying around the bed playing with Sam. And, um, and of course, I've just seen red. I'm thinking, <laughs> who is Sam? And then I've been cut off the phone, you know, get off the phone, we need the phone, keep it, you know, open the business phone and all this sort of stuff. And so it wasn't for a couple of days that I was able to Stew on clarify. It. <laughs> so you can imagine at that age and, and, and going to work the next day, yeah, there was there was a whole lot of damage going to happen to Sam just to find out it was their pet cat. <laughs> so so my first, my fellow jealous moment was of a cat. Yeah. Pretty good hunter though, cats as well. Well, there you go, yeah, this is true. So yeah. when did you, so the dis, long distance was going on for a few years and then when did that change? Um, so at the gra end of grade 12, I went out at Christmas time and got a job at the gold mine. So that was about an hour from Rob's family's property. During that time, I guess I always knew I wanted to have some sort of qualification fallback and mum had suggested the nursing and that TAFE was doing it and I didn't have to go away to uni and I could do it from home, so... Yeah, after about probably three and a half months of my leaving high school, I went home again and started nursing. And so mm. the long distance started again. Yeah, yeah. and then we, because I used to get back over there through the wet season 
when things were quiet at home and and then uh, and then I started rodeoing over there so we we pretty well you know I was I, I guess there was a couple of years there where you could say I was actually living in Queensland and I was only going back to the station through the you know right in the middle of the, the cattle season for a couple of months to do that but you couldn't say I was permanently in Queensland but it was pretty close so we were living together through that period and and then um, and then we got married in in 2004 and uh, and then I started a job in the mines literally two days after our wedding and then we were living together in Dysart yeah so we had a, about a year in Dysart a bit over yeah and then we decided that we just didn't love the mining world and that um, we'd head back out to the station. So, yeah, set up mm. out there and start family. So really, 2005, at the start of the cattle season, we moved out there and we wanted to start a family and there's no way we, we wanted to bring our children up in that mining um, community or that mining mentality. The other um, thing during that year, though, was I was finishing my last year of my registered nursing. And yeah. then 2005 was really when life seemed normal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We started we started our family and and uh, and we were living together at the station and yeah, every day was get up and go to work and That's come home and have a feed and go to bed. Mm. You must have an incredible friendship. You must have both had an incredible connection to you know be like yeah no I, this is this is the person. Yeah, I think well within reason. Yeah. I think um, I think there was a fair bit of respect in the early days, both ways. And as far as, yeah, you know, what sort of a wife you could see for your future, for myself personally, Sarah ticked the boxes. All my sisters loved her, you know, mum loved her and and um, and she fitted into our lifestyle and, and my way of thinking and my way of working. And, you know, even like when Sarah was doing her nursing externally, um, there were several times when I was in Queensland, I was cutting timber for the... For, for a company over near Chinchilla and, and, you know, I'd be out running chainsaws in and out of the scrub, cutting trees and, and Sarah would be sitting in the front seat of the ute studying for this, that or the other, you know, and then with the rodeoing and that sort of thing, um, you know, we were doing one or two um, rodeos, if not bull rides every weekend and Sarah was just part of the camp. Uh, all my friends loved her and, and um, she was just really one of the guys when it come to to that sort of lifestyle, so it was just, it was comfortable. It made sense. Mm. And for you, Sarah? We're probably friends. We've always been friends, even from high school, before there was any romance involved. Robbie had similar family values, work ethic, like our, our fathers, our parents, I was going to say, are very similar in they both work together on the land and face challenges, have similar background, like my family's properties been in the family, my great-grandparents, and um, saw those little things sort of probably all aligned. And it's funny that your mum suggested nursing. I know, because I didn't really know. I knew I wanted to do something. I'm quite indecisive. I've always been, I can do what I set my mind to, but deciding what that is, who knows. But um, yeah, so I think the moment I walked into ICU in Alice Springs, it all sort of fell into place, I guess. It definitely... The stars aligned or I don't know I didn't actually work a whole lot outside of completing my nursing and doing my training and stuff 
for those years and then we moved to the desert. There's not many local hospitals that you can, outside of um, worker injuries on the station, which quite happen quite a lot. But, yeah, I think it sort of was fate's way or life's way or preparing for what was coming, I guess. Absolutely. And so I guess take us to the accident then that day. Yeah, well, we... um as our children were being born, um, at the time we had a, uh, he was almost two and, um, and six-month-old baby um, at the time. And, and uh, I'd started doing a fair bit of contract mustering um, in the quiet periods of, of those couple of years leading into the helicopter crash. And, um, and you know, I could just see the, the benefit of having a, a license. So I was actually externally studying to get me helicopter license um, leading up to this period and and then it was just too big you know to be able to achieve it and then the the cost of the license and everything else was way too much so we um, I decided to look into gyrocopters and um, I've always been fanatical about whatever it is I'm doing I need to understand it prior to being you know I, I, I never found any comfort in just doing I needed to understand the whys and the hows and you know all the nuts and bolts of of different aspects of life and so we moved down to to Broken Hill and uh, and I lived with an engineer down there and built my gyro from the ground up and um, and then learned to fly and then flew it from right down the bottom of South Australia all the way to to Superljack and um, we were using I was using it for everything on the on the property, the gyro, and um, I was actually flying that morning in uh, in 2008. We were mustering a little a little um, area of the property that we uh, hadn't, you know. Usually, it's not it's not on the on the books as a, as a normal muster. We had an extended wet, so cattle had gone out onto onto water holes and uh, and spread right out. And so I got going first thing in the morning with the gyro to start bringing cattle in. And we had two other helicopters, um, luckily, as, as the day panned out, mustering as well. And so um, I'd been flying for about three hours and had cattle coming into the main water hole. And the second helicopter was flying back to refuel. And so I thought I'd do the same thing and we could just have a bit of a chat about, you know, how to pull it all together when it come to uh, yarding the cattle up. And... Um, Anyway, we were just we were discussing where we'd all been working, and because as you can imagine, when you're in the air, you know, over huge areas, you don't really know where the other machine is. You can't see it all the time, and uh, so I jumped in the the helicopter as a passenger, just to go with him to show him where I'd been working, where the tail of my cattle were, and and uh, where we were headed, and and uh, so we flew out, and everything was working beautifully. All the cattle were coming together quite quick, and we you know we would have been yarded ahead of time and and um and i said oh well everything's right here will take me back to my gyro so i can be useful and um yeah we were just flying straight and level and we still don't know there's there's plenty of plenty of rumors around what actually happened but we definitely experienced some sort of engine failure or or just a glitch you know in the engine itself but uh either way we went from flying to falling pretty quick and um I still remember, you know, uh, you know, the pilot's reaction to what was going on because, you know, he was he was extremely um, quick in putting it into 
into some form of auto because he just lost power and and uh, we were only at about 500 feet so it didn't take long before we were in amongst the trees and you know he he did an incredible job to to avoid the bigger timber to find what we thought was the only clearing uh, available to us which was far from clear there was there was trees and shrubs and scrub you know scrub country all around us and and uh, but he did manage to get us down to the ground uh, without hitting anything and it was it was just really unfortunate when we when we land on the skids um, we, we still had a fair bit of power and um, and we hit a as the machine started to slide the skid hit a little stump on the ground it was literally a couple inch stump which was just enough to to flip the machine and and um, anyway then the um, the tail rotor struck the ground or struck a tree and and of course that's a bit like a steering wheel to a to a motor car once the once the tail rotor was gone um, the pilot didn't have a great deal of control left and and um, anyway the machine flipped up on its side and and uh, I suppose it's a bit like a lawnmower on its side it just thrashed around the scrub until it burnt off all its energy and, and it landed upside down on the passenger side, which is which is the side that I was on. And yeah, so anyway, when I sort of realised what was going on, like because like I said, it was milliseconds from flying to to hitting the deck, and and um, and when I opened my eyes, my knees were you know I was still hanging out of the seatbelt, and my knees were dangling over my over my head, and I could see back up between my legs. I could see the pilot hanging out of his seat above me, and we were both we were both completely conscious, and and uh, and you know the dust was still settling around the chopper while we were talking to each other, and uh, and we knew that we had to get out of the machine because there was a few sparks and there was fuel leak, and and uh, we were both talking about if the machine, you know, got on fire and all this sort of thing, and and when I went to move and couldn't, that's that's probably when we first realised that. I was in a bit of trouble, and and um, anyway, as it as it happened, the pilot let himself down out of the seatbelt and kicked what was left of the, the the windshield out of the machine and came around. and And originally, we thought that I was just jammed, and that's why I couldn't move. And so we tried to lift because the, the 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 weight of the machine was balancing on my on my forehead. And when um, when we shifted the the cab of the helicopter, I got a real electric shock um, through my body which is just a it was just a bizarre and, and weird phenomenon to happen it, it I could imagine it was being struck by lightning and and that's when we knew it was real bad um, the fact that I couldn't move the fact that I couldn't feel and and um, and so I, I guess there was a lot of unknown uh, and confusion set in all in a split second in the sense that we, we, we were aware enough to know that, um, that I'd had a spinal injury, but didn't really know what to do about it. You know, we, 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 we had a machine that sled power and there was you know, 90 litres of aviation fuel dripping right about six inches from my face. And we had to make some really dramatic decisions then and there. And um, the first one was disconnecting the battery, which, which sounds simple, but you know, for anyone that's done it, you nearly always get a little spark when you when you take the terminal off, and and so you know, I was just lucky enough that the pilot, uh, who's a mate of mine, was clever enough to wet a jacket and do it all under under a wet jumper, 
instead of allowing any chance of a spark because we would have lit up and, and it would have been a totally different outcome. And, and um, while all this is going on, we sort of did as much as we could to, to, uh, to safeguard, you know, what was left, I guess, of, of my situation. And the whole time I'm still hanging upside down out of the seatbelt because we were scared to move me, you know, because you hear all the stories, it's worse to do that. You're better off leaving them alone. And luckily we did have that second helicopter mustering with us because um, when he couldn't get us on the UHF, he come flying until eventually he saw the wreck. And uh, he tried a couple of times to uh, to land where you know he couldn't because of the because of the scrub and and so he flew back to the stock camp and and picked up my brother-in-law and and um, and an axe and they flew back and threw the axe out and so um, the pilot cleared a bit of timber and a bit of brush away so they could land that helicopter and uh, and then they were the same as the pilot you know they they got back to where I was and again everyone was limited to what they could do to try and help me out and I guess that that was where we we sort of hit a milestone through the morning of um of of not really understanding what to do with it with a spinal injury because the only thing that I knew was that I had to stay conscious and uh and and when my breathing became that labored I was starting to see stars and and I was petrified of 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 passing out and so we made the decision to cut the seatbelt and try and straighten my body out, hoping that, you know, I could, I could breathe a little easier. And, you know, when we cut the seatbelt, of course, my body just slumped on top of my head and, and, um, and then we straightened my body out. I was still in the machine. Um, and luckily my breathing came back enough, um, which is just phenomenal in itself because when we, you know, later realised the level of injury that I had, the ability to breathe, should have been like every other um, bodily function, but shut down, and and um, the doctors can't even really figure out why I was able to do that. But anyway, um, so I suppose in the background at this stage, Dad had been on the sat phone and called the homestead, and uh, and told the girls about what had happened. You know, told my wife Sarah and 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 Mum and and uh, that there'd been a helicopter crash and. They didn't really go into who was involved, and and um, and I suppose talking to Sarah after. When... I knew it was you even before your mum had said. Um, so when the phone call came in, because the office, um, all us women were at home, we were getting ready. I had my best friend over from Queensland, so the kids were out in the blow up pool and we were making sushi like stuff that you don't do when you got a whole stock camp. And um, the phone call had come in, and the kitchen looks past the dining room into the office, a big glass window. And um, Rob's mum had said, what do you mean the second chopper can't fly? And Rob's sister walked in and made eye eye contact and she'd just sort of given her a glare like, don't say. And I just knew in the instant that Rob would have been involved somehow because he was always the one, I guess, at the forefront of the to-do in the chopper or... Yeah, and then from then, and we didn't really know, we sort of got mixed messages that um, Chopper crashed, Rob couldn't feel anything, but it was hot. Oh, and then the next phone call, he could feel something in his arm. So we didn't really know, we just knew that. Um, and in the meantime, the flying doctors had been called and the um, mine, Tenemite Gold Mine had been called and we were lucky their medic had just flown back on site. So the second chopper 
flew down and Richard brought her back. And in the interim, Rob's dad had been taken to the crash site and helped cut Rob out using his Leatherman out of the helicopter. And so they had him laid out flat under one twig of shade. Um, yeah, so we were really fortunate. The, um, the medic at the mine had only just flown in that morning herself, um, as luck had it. So when, when the second helicopter flew, um, she was obviously limited in what she could carry back because it is only a, a mustering machine. And, you know, th the decision that she made with the gear that she brought saved my life. You know, um, it's just phenomenal the way the, the way the world works. But she, f she flew out and, um, and she had oxygen and she had a neck brace and she had the ability to, to, to assist getting me out of the machine away from the, the helicopter in case it did, it did light up. And without her, um, it would have been a really big uphill battle to survive the rest of the day. And, and of course, the Royal Flying Doctors had flown out but in an aeroplane, so they were only able to land at the airstrip at the homestead. And uh, where we'd crashed, you can't get to via the ground. I mean, you could, you could trek in or you could take a horse in, but there's How no way. Was it it's about 50 k's, so about, well, it's about 55 k's from the crash site through to the, to the airstrip. Um, and it was probably about 15 or 18 k's from the nearest road topographically. And, and there's just no way in the world you would have driven a, a motor car into where we were in amongst all this timber, it was fairly, it was a fairly remote sort of an area. And, and so then, you know, uh, in amongst all of this, they were calling for a, a rescue helicopter. And, uh, and there was two of them based in the territory at the time. And one was already out on another retrieval and the, and the second machine was actually pulled apart being serviced. So there was no, you know, there was no uh, medical helicopters um, in the territory uh, that were available, and so this is the beauty of the bush. You know, the 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 communication channels open up, and and you know, word gets out along the grapevine. And a mate from up at he was actually up near Darwin had an R44, and when he heard what had happened, he just put it into 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 go mode, and you know, he flew well over a thousand kilometres um, to 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 just lend a hand, um, which is what I've always loved about the the territory. He flew past a, an Aboriginal community and he picked up a, a full body stretcher from them and tied it down and, and then he flew through to the airstrip at, um, at the station and picked up two of the flying doctors and then flew them out to the, to the crash site and by that stage uh, there was really nothing more than just retrieving me and, and heading back to the airstrip uh, that those doctors could do and you know it's just it's it's crazy to think that the gear that the, the, the mine medic brought was the gear that I needed for the, the situation I was in, um, whereas the doctors didn't bring any gear. Well, they had to. That, that would, have, would have helped me at that situation. So, you know, it's, it's just incredible the way things play out. Um, they had to limit what they could carry out to in the helicopter. Knowing they were going to be bringing me back. In the machine. So yeah, to put it in up, just like... so Rob crashed at about ten thirty, um, and we didn't actually leave the station, and we're in the air as the sun was setting. So this was an all day 
you're still Affair. in the house the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, so mm. I sort of just went into um, pilot mode, I guess. I knew that he'd be going at least to Alice Springs because we still didn't know what injury was at play, I guess, um, and that we'd probably be then going through to Adelaide. So I had a two-year-old and a six-month-old, so I had to organise clothes for all of us. Our vehicle at the time had a flat tyre, so we had to organise getting that all changed in case someone had to take our vehicle and I couldn't go or I had to follow in. We didn't know whether I'd be able to go on the plane with Rob, what kids could go, and in the end it was baby me and we left our two-year-old at home, which was the first time we'd left him at all. Yeah, so to distract him, one of the aunties, Arnie's son, had him on the quad bike doing fun laps around the airstrip while mum and dad sailed off into the sunset, I guess. Mm. Um, Yeah, it was a long day, but it was just, there was a lot of just to do, sitting around waiting. And because they weren't on the end of a two-way back then, we didn't have the repeater in place and they had the sat phone, um, which was lucky. Only a couple of days before my parents had left and we'd offered it on the sat phone because they'd done their second spare tyre. And they said, no, that'll be okay. And thankfully, that was the sat phone we needed to send the emergency call in. There were a lot of things that day. Like we didn't normally have the second mustering chopper. We didn't have a lot of things fell into place to get Rob out mm, safely. Which is, yeah, so there was like there was a period through the day where keeping oxygen in my body was the was the the real challenge um it, it was you know it was every bit as important as what it was just to get me out of the scrub and um and you know the fact that this this r44 um came all the way down to help you know it's just it's just incredible anyway once they once they finally got me onto the stretcher um realistically outside of a bit of oxygen under my nose and a, and a drip in my arm um everything else was was exactly like you said survival instincts throughout that day and 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 like sarah mentioned dad had to he had to use a leather man and a pair of fencing pliers to cut the the roof out of the helicopter so they could slide me out straight uh just to turn around and lift me onto the back seat of a r44 to fly me back to the um back to the airstrip so you know everyone was using bull straps and and shoelaces to tie the the stretcher down across the back seat of the helicopter and uh, and then one of the medics squatted down in the back seat and tried to hold me there so you know and Rob's quite a tall man so his feet and head were hanging out either side so the whole flight so back from it's only a little from the rescue side you chopper. know my head's it's hanging out it's not like you're closed safely the doors had been taken off to make way hanging out the side so that I you know essentially I was watching blades spinning above my head all the way back to the to the airstrip and and when we got back to the, the airstrip, I remember flashes of, of going into the aeroplane, um, but then they put me into a, into a, um, a coma. Yeah, induced coma. Induced coma on the aircraft before we got going and, and tried to secure my airways and, and all this sort of thing. So then they, um, yeah, I, I don't really have many, I've only got you know very vivid flashes of memory for the next really for the next two weeks, but they um, they airlifted us into Alice Springs and we stayed in the hospital that night and then they they carried on with the journey to fly us down to, 
down to Adelaide, down to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Yeah. Well, I guess it was night time, so they couldn't really go. Is that why they stayed in Alice Springs that night? No, I think there was, there was a, a bit, bit of confusion of, yeah. around he should have been available aeroplanes oh. by rights, according to the doctors and spinal mm. doctors, you know. Medically. What was, what was left of the ideal world for me would have been fly from the station straight to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and they would have put me straight into traction and perhaps, and this is the old crystal ball effect, um, perhaps the outcome would have been different. But as it played out, we spent a night in Alice Springs and then when the you know the second aeroplane was available, then they airlifted me down to... So down he'd to, gone pretty... About lunchtime you left Alice, so you'd been well over the 24 hours. Yeah, which, yeah. which is a really pivotal time frame with, with spinal injuries. But yeah. anyway, that's, that was the hand that I was dealt. And, and, um, and then, yeah, down in Adelaide, they, they put me into traction. So they, they screwed the halo into my skull and then added as much weight as they could uh, for my body type, which, which was unsuccessful. They couldn't realign my spine so with Rob's traction. So Rob's vertebrae, C4-5, had one had jumped behind and got stuck on the knuckle so it had done a bit of an s-bend so the pressure had then there was no spinal fluid protecting the spine but the pressure couldn't be relieved by sort of popping it apart i guess so they had to take him into theater and shear the bone and brace it all and so after they did the the um the operation um and cut it all and realigned it and fused it and um, you know my, my actual spinal cord had been squashed for for way too long so the chance of it ever um, coming good again you it's know with every damage. hour it just yeah. gets less 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 so um, yeah really I, I woke up um, you know fully ventilated on life support in uh, in ICU and um, and then it was just that was home for twelve weeks. Yeah, it yeah. was a it was a three month period of yeah staring at the ceiling. We were having conversations with the doctors in the waiting room that Rob could be ventilated and live in Alice with a ventilator, and I think not once during from the initial phone call did I ever think he wouldn't be right, and I think that came from his various jobs, his various rodeo career, his accidents. His Rob's always been one that can just survive regardless. And so, yeah, having a specialist, a leading spinal doctor telling you that he'll be ventilated, that'll be okay. It just was not going to be a... And I wasn't naive in telling her that, but in my mind, that was just a challenge accepted sort of mentality, I guess. So we had to do a bit of tough love. Often the doctors would waltz in and just flick the ventilator down and watch to see, a bit like fish out of water, I guess. And then we got really lucky. We got a case manager a new one who was relieving come in and she set it as a bit of a personal goal of hers, I guess, to get Rob off the ventilator. Once Rob actually was explained what the ventilator was doing and what you had to do to get off it, you had a mission. See, I had absolutely no comprehension of what I was doing. If you could imagine I had absolutely no feeling, absolutely no movement. It was just basically my whole world was just my mentality, you know, my mindset. I was completely and utterly existing in my own brain and um, and that came with its own challenges but it wasn't until they explained that you've got a pipe in your throat going Breathing into your lungs 
and then you've got you know a ventilator pumping air in and pulling air out that's the only reason why you're alive i didn't understand that because i didn't know that 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 was happening you know i had absolutely no smell i had no taste so i just existed and he couldn't talk because when you're ventilated you can't talk. i existed in this one little meter square of ceiling of what i could see above me and outside of that i had no real comprehension because i'd always lived a fairly rough life and 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 been through you know numerous injuries you get hurt you know you break something you go to the doctor he fixes it you go home you're healed it's all over um so this got broke i went to the doctor i was waiting for him to fix me and send me home and so you know this extended period just didn't really make sense to me and in the background he was getting peg fed through a pipe he was um, the toileting routine was happening in bed. Rob was completely unaware because he couldn't feel. I couldn't, couldn't feel. Smell. I couldn't smell. I had. How could you communicate? Like how, with you, my eyes. With your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Rob and I. Uh, Rob can. I could mouth lip read. We could communicate quite well. By the end of it, it was sensational because the um. doctors had asked me a question and Sarah be breastfeeding our six-month-old on the floor, and I'd be mouth trying to mouth the word to him, and she'd be answering. The exact same way, so I was I had pretty a fortunate. Bed. When we first rocked in, and you can imagine a little two-year-old from the bush and um, six-month-old, and I sat in there, I was with Rob as much as I could be, but breastfeeding, we'd have nurses that said, no, you can't do that in here, there's too much um, infection risk, blah, blah, blah. And then by the end, we had I had a little cardboard box tucked away with a half little outdoor seat cushion thing, and a grey blanket, and um, when I could during the day, I'd get a sleep, and I'd have this child on the floor with me in the corner, breastfeeding, sleeping, existing, and our two-year-old existed with our support network in the waiting room, and often the nurses would have blueies and swabs, and he'd be Superman barefoot running around ICU, which was it's then another risk. It's just incredible how children can. It was our home for they, three months. If so. they know how. Our, he could give me directions in the lift where to go. He knew all the doctors by their names outside of ICU. And living in ICU, the extended network, so Rob's family were down there with us. My family would come and go. Rob's brothers got jobs down there. Um, the waiting room was always full. Um, the moment I'd come out, someone would be trying to feed me. But our two-year-old existed, and you'd see all the emergency things on the news and the next minute everyone would be in ICU or the extended family and this one day there'd been a bit of a bikey clash and Rob's father's in the corner quietly there and now this big burly biker comes in and sits down and then Braxton just grabs his book and off he goes and sidelines him so here's this bikey reading to our two-year-old quite happily so he um he just became a little man I guess and I think that's where, with with hearing these stories uh, while I was in ICU, because um, I was only ever allowed to have one or two guests come in at a time, so you'd catch up on, you know, and they'd say, oh, there's such and such and such and such, sitting in the waiting room, and, and um, I drew a lot of strength out of knowing that, a lot of comfort, but often, a lot of strength. and um, Often a lot of extended family or station people would visit Adelaide. They didn't get to see Rob, but they'd be in the waiting room or they'd go and have a cup of tea with Rob's parents. So mm. I had family members that had been in there for, you know, two or three weeks straight that I hadn't even seen uh, or they hadn't seen me. 
And um, so that that understanding was a really driving point in 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 uh, not so much my recovery, but um, my survival from getting off the life support. And um, when this nurse explained how the ventilator is helping me and and what I need to do to remove it, I guess uh, you know I. I you had a challenge. I had a totally different mentality towards waking up the next day and what I was going to set out to achieve. And, and, and learning how to breathe again was probably one of the hardest things that, I, that I've ever done. And um, you can never compare apples and apples because every injury is different. But I would, I would challenge that it's probably the hardest thing that anyone would have to do is to learn how to breathe because once you start to you know, cut the machine back, it's just a drowning feeling over and over and over again. So I never ever believed in, in you know, in anxiety or, or, or stress or, um, you know, any of that sort of mental mind games that we, we, we often um, experience and don't understand. Um, but that was a wake-up call for me was, you know, when I knew the nurse was coming and we were going to slow down the, the oxygen on the machine, I would get extremely anxious and and um, and and not so much scared, but um, what was your life? Like? It was just a terrible feeling. It felt like you know, one minute you're in a boat, next minute you're at the bottom of the ocean, and there was no real in between. And so, it was a very drawn out process and a lot of mixed emotions. You know, they they the the hospital because I was you know almost becoming a permanent residence there. Um, <laughs> they would offer to. To, to hand ventilate me from my hospital room and wheel me out onto a, into a bit of a courtyard where there was a bit of a waterfall and a, and a few plants and, and then they could plug the life support back in out on, this, out on this bit of a courtyard, which meant I could then have a whole lot more family around me. And um, as much as I absolutely loved going out there through the day, I knew the, the 60 seconds that it took to go from my room when they'd unhook one machine and then hand ventilate me to get me out there. And we had a few nurses that got too caught up in their stories and forgot to hand pump the machine. And, and it, you know, it just, it used to freak me out. And, so and, it used um, to be, Robert, get to the courtyard. And it was quite lovely and all the family would be excited to see him, but no one could go near him for probably a good five, 10 minutes till he... Calmed the farm yeah. because I was just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't comprehend Ironically, hey, we're you on the fourth floor. press the machine to pump a bit of air into a Fourth bike. floor with some, they had some water features and it was quite lovely. But when the um, helicopter would fly over, because <laughs> we're in a little tunnel, I guess, on the fourth floor, surrounded by walls, the ab gas would blow down. So when you did slowly get So I'd smell you, that and then that would take me straight back to the crash site yeah. when the ab gas was dripping beside my nose and... Yeah, so anyway, I didn't have a, a great deal of respect for helicopters for a good while after, especially <laughs> the av- And it had nothing to do with the helicopter. It was only the smell of the aviation fuel. But yeah. See, that was, that was, you know, one of the bizarre things was for three months they were wheeling me in and out onto this little courtyard. And I just assumed because there was a waterfall in the plant, we were down on the ground floor. I didn't even understand that we were up four stories up. Yeah. Couldn't see out the window or... Because yeah. I saw nothing but the ceiling. So, so at this stage, you're still lying down. You're not still dead yeah. flat. Yeah. So they did start towards the end of that sitting rob up, and you sort of felt like one of those, you know, the dogs in the cars with the bouncing head. Yeah. Just like a head existing 
I guess. I um, had a tumble turn doll, so she'd just have all the weight in her head, you know, and you could just... <laughs> yeah. it, like, well, that's pretty much how I felt. And with Rob sitting up, then his blood pressure adjusts, so there's a whole lot more involved with just sitting up. Um, so that was a very slow process, learning how to um, sit. After the sort of 12 weeks, you were off the ventilator and around to the spinal unit? Yeah, so they, they removed the, the permanent ventilator, but they kept, they capped the, the hole in my throat so that um, they could if assist me with yeah. clearing my lungs, and which we were doing on Still pretty much a daily basis. They'd have down. to feed a machine down my throat and, and um, you know, because I couldn't cough, I couldn't breathe properly. Um, and at night time, they'd hook me back up to the ventilator so I could get some sleep, but there were periods... You know, which what started off at thirty seconds, then turned into thirty minutes, then turned into three hours, and then eventually we got to the stage where I could breathe by myself. And then, of course, we had to learn how to to speak on the back of that because I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but you've got to be breathing out to talk. You can't talk while you're breathing in, and so I had to have air passing out of my uh, mouth and nose over the vocal cords for me to be able to speak. So. My first few words were only little tiny whispers and mm. all these we guys We had a stethoscope because to... dad, Rob's dad's got hearing aids, so they let the cuff down in the trackie which holds it in place so that the air could pass through and Rob's dad had this um, stethoscope clipped in so he could hear Rob talking. And they'd hold it up to my mouth because yeah. it was only a very weak whisper. And so then we, yeah, so we spent a week in, in, uh, in the spinal ward, a week or two in the spinal ward and... And Rob was um, learning how to eat, so he had a corned beef sandwich. Corned beef sandwich for his first, or oh, lemonade icy pole, corned beef sandwich. That's um, just incredible, though, because that time you really are existing in your head. Like you can't communicate, you can't even breathe. So, you know, yep. and people are talking to you, but you can't say anything back no. apart from lip reading and such. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And so a lot of doctors would waltz in and not even acknowledge that Rob was there. Um, yeah, in their defence, most of their patients in ICU are unconscious, only there for a couple I of days and gone. Yeah. I quite often I would just direct the question back to Rob and look at Rob, and they'd sort of understand then that that's where we're heading. And I guess like for them to do their job is that they, you know, got to have that sort of distance. You know, like that's sometimes having that yeah. distance from patients is good to keep. You know, like not get emotionally attached. But I mean, I can only imagine. Remembering that there's a human. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny, exactly what you said was exactly what we experienced um, because I was there for so long. And, I mean, generally I see you, you're in, you're in and you're either in and you're dead and then you're out, mm-hmm. or you're in you get better and you're out. So they move them on pretty quick. I watched a lot of people, um, come, people and come and go and not, mm-hmm. not all of them moved on. Moved on. A lot of, uh, there was quite a few deaths while we were there. So there, it was a... It was, a, I mean, an absolutely tragic place to be from this happy family cattle station where we're all working shoulder to shoulder and, and you know, living life together and partying together and, and um, you know, belting our knuckles together to then being jammed into this fairly savage, violent, wild sort of a atmosphere uh, or, or environment, you know, even just with our kids um, being able to adapt to that, and I think that was, you know, that's the beauty of a lot of bush kids is they, they, you know, they build resilience from such a young age that they can bounce. So um, for Rob, he, 
laying flat on his back to watch Lawson, who learnt to walk, crawl, all the things. He had a pair of these old, they were triangle glasses with three points in them. So when he's laying flat, he can put them on and it shows what's happening on the ground. So we'd have a hospital blanket down and Lawson would be sitting on the ground or crawling around. That's how you got to really see kids unless they were jammed up in front of the unless face. Someone, and, and, you know, a lot of... Ventilated and you can't put a toddler... A lot of family yeah. would hold the kids up and, and stick them up above me so I could see them, but the kids would be just freaking out because here's this dude with all these pipes hanging out of him everywhere and, and, uh, and I could only imagine it would have been pretty scary for the kids. Like, they, they didn't understand what was going on. I think our two-year-old did. I think I think subconsciously. Yeah, slowly as Rob very, got more confident within himself, he could kick back in bed with you. And once we got to spinal ward, he'd be suctioning and dressed up as doctor and playing games. So yeah, we used to let him pretend to yeah, stick the for suction them, in my throat. And they never suffered. They were always supported. The kids never knew any different. Kids adjust. They adapt. Mm. So, so then we, we finally got moved on from there and went into the rehab stage, which was out of a place called Hampstead in Adelaide, which was a fantastic like spot, really, yeah, as far as rehabilitation yeah. goes. It was a terrific spot. And, and like you said before about not getting too close, you know, doctors and nurses not getting too close to their, to their patients. It, it was funny because, you know, for me, if you're, if you're you know, working alongside someone long enough, they become mate. And I, I had a, a very similar conversation with, with one of the orderlies there. And he, he made it very clear about the second weekend. He said, look, I'm telling you now, you're, you're another uh, dude in a wheelchair. I'm an orderly. We're not mates. And, uh, and we never will be. I just work here. And I had a little chuckle with him. And I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, he got to the stage where, yeah, he wasn't afraid to sneak us a few beers in or or bring a pizza in, or, or, he'd or turn a blind we'd eye. have a pizza. He didn't bring it in, but yeah. We'd have a pizza, and, and, and he'd come and share with us. So, you know, the day we left, he, he definitely come and give us a hug and said, see you later, mate, and, and wanted to stay in touch. So, I think that's one thing we did from the get-go was push boundaries, not in a disrespectful manner or anything. We were just our family unit. To break the mould. Um, and... Like, even in ICU, I slowly started shaving Rob or washing his hair or doing things knowing full well we live eight hours from town yeah. and when we go home we're going home um, and I'm not going to have the support network so I sort of wanted to learn as much as I could and then we'd leave ICU where you sort of had the run of the mill round to um, spinal where they tell you the exact same road rules and you're not allowed here after hours and you're not allowed here before this time and slowly which when you've got the head nurse or Generally, it wasn't necessarily them. It was whichever nurse you met as you introduced to the facility. But you'd just hold back your tears and think, oh, here we go again. But I just quietly slotted back in and would stay there until Rob would be asleep pretty much and then quietly slot back out. And then we got mm. to rehab and it was the same. The lady at the front counter was telling me, these are the visiting lay hours. The law down. This is how it's you can't be do on. this, this and this. And then you'd find that one nurse that said, just come. She's not even here. Turn up at six and you'll be right. One of the things that we, we, we learnt fairly early in the piece is um, with spinal injuries, I, and, and I'm, I'm sure there's other people that share my understanding of this, that if you're a C4 quadriplegic, well, then you get put in the, 
the C4 box. And if you're a C5, well, then you get put in the C5 box. And um, very rarely are you allowed to change that in the sense that a C4 won't get the same treatment that a C5 or 6 Well, every injury is so different. It is so different, but the textbooks talk about this level of injury, well, this is the life you're going to have. I know, because we do that with everything in life, don't we? We just want everything to be clear-cut in a box so that we can understand it. All right, we can apply this to it, but it's not simple like that. So there was a lot of things that I would ask um, therapists or doctors or um, pretty much anyone that was involved in Getting Not so much dictating, but in a way dictating my future. Mm. Um, I would say, I want to do this. And I would nearly always get the same answer back. Rob, you need to understand that you're now a C4 quadriplegic, so you can't live like that. You can't do this. You can't go and live in the desert. You can't live so far from You can't from travel that far on hospital. rough road you, with your you skin. Know. You can't. There's all these can't, can't, can't words with with every aspect of, of me trying to just get back to some sort of normality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, we, we've since come to realise that um, people's comprehension and understanding of the way we lived as able-bodied people was still very foreign. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, especially now that we're over in Queensland, you know, it, it's you're like an alien to a lot of people to explain where you live or how long it takes to do a ball run or... How big a property is, or, or well, how many cattle you're running. Or you just duck to town for a day. Meanwhile, you know, it's like fifteen hundred k's round trip. And so um, that was that was for us, and 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 it was a bit of a game for myself. It was well, right, well, they're all the barriers now. I'm going to break them down, and um, so that's what basically the next nine months was for me. Was um, I would almost give them the ammunition to build a wall. And then I'd spend the next week breaking it down. And um, so it was very much a game, but it was also a time where... Um, we were setting up all the things in place to do it all safely yeah, when we did go home. we were challenging every day. Like that, I think that year that we were down in Adelaide broke a lot of records with a heat wave that came through. Mm, it was hard. over 20 days, uh, 20 consecutive days of over 40 degree heat. And... Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd want to get out of my bed and into my chair, uh, which I was driving with a chin control at the time, and I wanted to go outside and sit in the heat so that I could see how much heat I could take. And um, and there'd be all these doctors and nurses saying, you can't go outside, Rob, you know, you're going to melt, you're going to die. This is, And I just wanted to know why. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but you don't know what I can handle. I don't know what I can handle. You so know, medically, this... Rob can't regulate his temperature. He can't sweat. He can't cool down. He can't... If he overheats, he overheats and it takes all night to come down again. So Rob was pushing the boundaries to see what he could do. So I'd just go and sit out in the sun in the middle of the day until I did start to melt. And, and there was a whole lot of I told you so's and now I understand. But the reality is I had to do that because essentially it's like a brand new baby. You've got to... You know, every now and again, you've got to kick the train wheels off and and, uh, and test the limits of what you can and can't do. So that's pretty much what we did through um, through through my rehab sort of period. And, you know, it's funny because we, we, my very first time uh, getting in a taxi was in this <laughs> wheelchair. And, you know, one of the quickest things that I'd ever seen was the lunch lady in rehab. You know, every, the world was very slow. Yeah. 
um, in rehab in the centre. And then I get in this taxi with this Indian driver in Adelaide. In Adelaide. Road. I mean, it was fast. He was probably only doing 40k an hour, but it was fast. <laughs> and he'd stop and I'd be fucking here screaming at him. And <laughs> it was just incredible how quick the world was because I hadn't seen the world, you know, for, for close to 12 months. And um, everything had been inside a hospital and it was all very, you know, how are you doing today, love? And then you get out in the world and there's cars zipping around and people on push bikes and you know, it was it was it was honestly a, it was scary. Well our first outing outside of the facility was just across the road and it's Hampstead Road had two or three lanes, I can't remember, of traffic both directions and a little little centre island. Rob was driving with a chin control at the time and if he had a spasm or hit a bump, it'd knock it into neutral, so you'd have to pause and wait to hit it into drive. So there's a group of us and we go to cross the road and everyone skips across and then Rob comes and his I chair pauses and then you're just hoping you're not going to get cleaned up by a truck. And then we eventually got across. We were going to a little cafe with a post office corner, little store thing. So we saddle in there. I've just shifted the chin control out of Rob's face and gone to, so that he could have his dinner without it in his face. And next minute, we're at the end of an intersection a car's gone through the intersection, the light's fallen down, one's spinning, one's coming straight for us. And There was a huge car crash within about 30 metres. We've got of the where kids, we I've sitting. got my husband in a chair that we can't shift, and you're just looking at this driver, and Rob's mum's just waving at him to turn like this star days person's coming for us, and then he turns into oncoming traffic and up the gutter, and all this happened in a split second. And I'm pretty sure Rob wanted to go and hide like back in his cars, little... And one car's upside down and they knocked down... So a, they'd miss the one lights, the T-bone somebody. Lights and and this all happened. We're on the footpath and that's about In a blink of an eye. God, you would have got back to smiling. How was your first outing? Yeah, Rob yeah. wanted to go home and never come I back I just out. wanted to go back to rehab and never come back out again. Yeah. Yeah. I always laugh because the kids growing up, you know, they always ask the questions about why the chicken cross the road. Don't, and I don't just, do it. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Stay in the coop. Don't, don't leave. The fox can't but get you. But all those little things you take for granted, like you get discharged. But, yeah, even coming home. So we were lucky. Um, my brother had found us a quite a big house um, with a granny flat and a nice backyard and the people were renovating their country house. So we moved into a pretty much self-furnished uh, house where we could all live. Visitors could come and stay. There was way. a big pool room, Yeah. But even taking Rob home just for visits in the afternoon mm. and then transitioning to an overnight stay and all the stuff that came with that and then a two-night stay, all the toileting and all the stuff which would just we'd adjust and happen in the laundry or outside the backyard under a hose, which the kids thought was great. They'd have, we'd have the sprinkler. Dad would be naked on a shower chair in the backyard in the city with planes flying over and... That, that was our slow transition to life, a new normality, I guess. Yeah, the, the, we were very fortunate. But see, like, this is where I was just so lucky with all my family because the second the chopper went down in, in the Territory um, and they knew where I was going to be, uh, I had one brother in, in, um, in Queensland and um, the other one was in Alice Springs. And, you know, from his eyes, he, he actually rang the same day as the chopper crash. He rang with this exciting news, you know. So they'd my, gone to town. Me and my partner are pregnant. So he was ringing up with all this beautiful, happy, wonderful news. 
to get a reply, chopper's gone down, Rob's broken his neck. Stained, And yeah. he's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he was in Alice when we got there that night, you know. And there wasn't even a question around how. Everybody just upped, packed up, and moved to Adelaide so that they could, they could be and there. And there were so many unknowns. because we to didn't support know. Sarah and the kids. Like no, my parents me. were looking, they said, well, if this is long-term, do we sell the property? Like all your initial thoughts, because there were no answers. We were just existing day by day back then. So. And both my brothers went and got a job down in the, in the meatworks to help pay rents and things like that mm. for everybody to exist. We had to, um, to a very exist. big extended network. So Rob originally from Clermont and then we had the Alice Springs people fundraise, good friends of ours coordinated big fundraising efforts and fundraised. so even during the dark days you had feedback from all that coming in so you knew that you were supported well outside just yeah. our immediate existence i mean has been completely uprooted overturned everything's different and for you rob how did you deal with losing that independence i didn't really dwell on it because um i figure you know every day above ground's got to be better than a day underground and, and there was, there was um, I'm not saying there weren't days where I felt really ripped off, but I, I, I guess I was fortunate through rehab um, to witness other people that had gone through fairly fresh injuries that were extremely negative and they were extremely sad and they were extremely angry and they were pushing people away from them. And, and I, you know, I've always... You know, Dad's always said you can still learn from even the dumbest bloke in the room. And so, you know, I was always looking to learn in every aspect of every day of every life and regardless of just the, the, the injury. But watching what was going on around me taught me a lot of the don'ts. And so I've, I've always, and I, and I still do, and it's got to be a conscious effort to, to not dwell on the things you can't change because at the end of the day, it's not going to change nothing. So um, I would just try and look at the, the, you know, the glasses half full in every aspect of, of what is left with, with where I'm at, um, you know, in the sense that, yeah, it sucks when there's flus getting around because I know I'm going to get a cold and I'm going to really struggle and end up probably with pneumonia and in hospital. But the reality is that's better than being fully ventilated, which could have been the you know, the alternate outcome. So, um, yeah, I've, I've never really dwelled no, and on takes, the things that I've lost. I try to look at the things that I've still got. And I think it takes so much energy to be, you know, angry or to be down in the dumps, you know, like that uses valuable en- energy that you could be putting into learning to breathe again or yeah, that's just right. talking, you know, getting your voice back. Or And I still had two little boys that didn't know any different. Their world um, didn't stop. You like know, their future didn't stop. So, and and these are the things that you know where we decide who you know who we're going to be and what we're going to achieve. And and um, you know, I I've never I've never had the luxury of being able to in all of my life growing up having the luxury of using an excuse mm-hmm. for not being your best mm-hmm. um, because at the end of the day, that's all it is 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 an excuse and. Mum and Dad have never allowed me to, to get away with having an excuse. You are what you are, man up, you know, wear it, whether good, bad or indifferent, you know. Um, so 
I wasn't going to allow this to be an excuse. And, I, and I've tried and I, I hope no one can ever argue the fact, but uh, especially with my children, I didn't want them to be able to grow up with an excuse that I, I could have been something too, but my dad's in a wheelchair. So all the little things along the way, you know, whether it's controlling your temper or, or learning how to love or kick a football or ride a push bike or ride a horse or ride a bull or whatever it is that they... Um, that they're, they're now capable of doing, I was still able to be a part of that as they were growing up. So, yeah, I don't, I don't try to look back. And I, and I never have in life. I, um, you know, we do what we do. We make decisions at the information we've got. And um, if you, you know, you, anything you're going to end up with is a, is a sore ass. If you spend too long sitting on the fence, you've got to pick a side and that's, you know, just go with it. And it's the same with, you know, I don't. I, I try to look through the windscreen and not through the revision mirror because, yeah, there's nothing really great that's going to come of trying to change the past, exactly. as opposed to sitting there and, you know, trying to change the future. And I feel like you would have a good sense of humour, as you know, the humility that you have to have. Of, yeah, I, I I tell everybody that I'm like that. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Years natu- after the fact. <laughs> I'm not naturally a funny guy, but I. Um, yeah, I, I tell everybody, or at least I tell everyone publicly that, yeah, I just make light of the, the little things, but um, there's still a lot that I I do struggle with. And and, and it it's probably not it's got nothing to do with modesty, it's it's trying to get my head around it because you've gotta you've gotta to learn to think a certain way to allow people into your life to be able to do these really intimate things with your body. But then how do you make sense of that tomorrow? Or, you know, you, you get upset over a certain situation, but then you still expect that person to wipe your nose or wipe your bum the next day. So there's a, there, you know, it's a, I reckon it's always been a, a dicey thing for me to, to try and comprehend. And Sarah knows it only too well because, you know, I don't want Sarah to have to be the person to help me blow my nose. So I, yep, okay, I'm feeling good today. I'm going to let this person blow my nose and then I feel like they really just stuff it up and no one wants to be the guy there with, you know, with a messy nose. And Sarah gets the look like I just want to run and Help dive me. off the veranda <laughs> or um, stick my head in the sand today. So, yeah, I pretend that I'm like that as well, but really I'm probably not. Mm. I'm a bit of a sook when it comes to that sort of thing. I don't think that's been a sook at all. I can't imagine like people in your personal space at all times being like, great, got no, I've just got to let it happen. And that's the reality. As much as Rob is such an independent person, like all the, we run these businesses and we do all this stuff publicly, he's quite a capable C45 quadriplegic that can absolutely do nothing for himself except his mentality and his communication skills. Everything's still sound there. But he does rely on someone 24-7. I guess that's, I feel like sometimes that's often overlooked because he is such a positive and just has attacked life as if he's not really any different than before his injury. So those things. And you don't dwell on all the negatives. Like you don't, you go and do speaking gigs and if people ask, we'll tell them, but you don't necessarily go down the ins and outs of everything that comes with But I certainly forget talking to you. Like, I'm just like, I'm talking to Rob. You know, I can't 
get my yeah. head around the fact that here you are, you, you've got a full body, you know, it doesn't occur to me that you can't actually use it. Yeah. It kind of disappears and you forget what your every day must be like, you know. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is I, I actually even do that to myself. So there, Sarah might duck out, you know, to do something or she might go to get the kids from the school bus run or whatever it might be and, and I could have visitors here and be having a conversation and so long as I don't look down, I really don't, in my mind's eye, I don't see myself as a person in a wheelchair. So I'll be having this big conversation and they'll be like, oh shit, we forgot, we better get going and so you're right, yeah mate, no, no worries, yeah, take care, I'll catch us later and then they leave and I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm by myself again now and yeah. there's no one around if, if there's times where I don't have an, a, another carer. And, um, and it's like, oh, shit, I just let that opportunity. I should have kept them people here until Sarah got back because the reality is if my hat blows off, I can't pick it up. Or I, I often do that to myself. And, and I know Sarah, she probably won't admit it, but she does it too because we could be sitting there at a barbecue and everyone's passing the packet of chips around I and still Sarah offer still, the bowl. She'll yeah. still hold the bowl 13, out like you want to years Well, later. yes, I do. But yeah. Or yeah. the other times where then I go to feed his father as well. So you go from one extreme. Depends <laughs> how many balls you've got in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were saying on the phone as well that Sarah's been shaving your face now longer than you have. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that out the other day, which is a, um, a pretty bizarre feeling knowing that your wife has shaved your face longer than you did yourself prior. And, I mean, your relationship as well is just incredible because, you know, you, the statistics, aren't they, like 80% of relationships don't last? I don't this, this, this relationship would never have lasted if it was just up to me. Yeah, yeah Sarah's, she's, she's probably one of the most dedicated, selfless people I've ever met in my life, and that's really the only reason why we're still together. Um, some of the great things that we've done since the injury, you know, scholarships and travelling around the world and, and coming over here and, you know, running our own cattle business and starting butcher shops and, you know, all the things that go into that, you have to remember Sarah's the one doing. So when the gate needs rewelding, you know, the hinges need rewelding or, you know, there's a breakdown mechanically, um, I'm sure it's fine that we've got people around at different times that can help at different times. Mm. But there is a constant, and that's every day, and, and Sarah's normally that person fixing all that stuff. So, yes, our marriage is strong, but it's only because of Sarah. That's, that's my honest belief. And we probably goes back to what you said at the start, that friendship and that foundation that we, I guess, began on. We're also very fortunate. We've got two parents that, two sets of parents that above everything they've been through owning and running businesses and family farms and all the rest. We've seen struggles. We've seen when you grow up in the country, you see other families that lose children to leukaemia or lose children to other things or husbands young. And so you're surrounded by adversity and heartache and challenges, and which I guess, I don't know, I haven't lived in the city, but you don't, I don't get the sense that you get the same support. Like even when Rob had his accident and for someone to hear the emergency call up in Darwin and fly all that way for one person that he kicked around the radio scene with for a bit, that's where that sense of belonging and the support and the strength and everything we do comes from. Mm, mm. See, I can still see it the other way because I find cities scary as hell. 
with all the ins and outs and back and forwards and ups and downs and people everywhere and what I mean is there's that, so that many people to me. and yet we lived as remote as we did but oh. at the drop of a hat we had people there I know you pass an accident on the street you know like I'll pass an ambulance but in you you know if you're in a small town you're like who's that what's going on what can I do but yeah in the city you're like I don't know just, just, covered. just as, yeah. yeah that's not me yeah. which is what I find scary yeah yeah and that's even disconnected yeah when we had our children we were in the desert and um i sort of rob and i were there by ourselves and we had a very extended wet a very huge little period there we, we got a lot of rain and couldn't get out people couldn't get in and i was about a month off having a child and i should have been in town and i guess i just knew that we'd be right worst case we'd have to get someone in a chopper to get me out or something yeah. so you just do what i guess you do Mm, we had 24 inches through that wet season and um, I think we had about 19 inches over two days which is just phenomenal for the desert so we I was working colts in the yards and um, after the second day Half we, the side of the house had blown we out had a, we had an empty everywhere. tank up on the hill that the, the storm blew off and it wiped out half the house took out the, the, the kitchen house. and the and the main bedrooms and and then it flew all the way down and bounced over into the yards and it was speared under the under the um, cap rail of the slide gates, and we when we woke up, it was funny because we, we were we were oblivious to it during the night because the frog squawking all night out there at the homestead uh, is almost deafening through the wet season. So Sarah and I had earplugs in to go to sleep, so and then noisy. as I swung <laughs> out of out of bed, and it's generated into power, water. so. Yeah. There's no power. So I've swung out of bed and stepped into ankle deep water. I'm like, oh my goodness. So we raced through the house and and just to find, you know, half the house and parts of the kitchen missing. So I ran out ran out and looked down to the cattle yards to where I was working colts and, and um yeah, they I mean the standing water level was halfway up their barrel of yeah. their of their bodies. So there was I snakes. literally there had to swim down to so swim these fun. horses out of the yards to uh, to get rid of them. So it was an incredible wet season. And, and the roads were cut north, south, east, west. There was no way of getting out via the road. And Sarah was nine and a half months pregnant. And it was only us at home at the time. And, and so we had to make do. We had to, we had to make do. And, and then we were fortunate enough to get her out on the mail plane a week later. And um, she flew into Alice Springs to have a baby, yeah. And when you said before, Rob, too, about the marriage, do you was there ever any time where you were like, Sarah, you can go. I don't want you around. Or no, you never had. You uh, never... No, it was never. I, I don't want you around. No. No, I, no, not at all. It was more of a every day. I was amazed of why she was still around. No, I, I certainly never ever had a period where, um, you know, and you see all these lovey dove movies where, you know, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. So you better go off, and live a better life. I've often had thoughts. But they're thoughts of of pure sacrifice that she's making um, to to continue what we started, and mm-hmm. you know the ultimate game is is um, you know some people are true to their word in in for better or for worse, and in in you know in, in those sayings for marriage, and and we've got you know two beautiful little boys that are growing up, which which has been an adventure by itself. So yeah, no, I certainly would never. And like Sarah touched on earlier, you know, both our families, you know, I always laugh because nowadays people talk about the perfect marriage. Oh, they're so lucky they've got the perfect marriage. I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect 
marriage, you know, and anyone that can get through, um, you know, for us it's 17 years, but for our parents it's, you know, 20 and 30 years and uh, 30 and 40 years and, and you ask them what is a perfect marriage and, you know, realistically that's rainbows and unicorns because it's not real. And, and because of our families, I think, I guess you have a... Well, there's a, not a standard, but there's just a, it's family. I don't trials know, and tribulations seen... come in all shapes Being and forms. Yeah. 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 You know that there's going to be ebbs and flows. Yeah. Mm. But very fortunate. And our kids are, our kids are absolutely beautiful. They, they have a, a deeper understanding without using words than, uh, than you could ever really give them credit for. Mm. Understanding, you know, that, okay, we, just, we won't worry about talking about going away this weekend because we can see that shit's gone wrong with dad, you know, physically or, or, or medically. And so mum, you know, they can see that mum's had an all-nighter trying to fix him, whether it's problems with catheters or blood pressures or whatever it might be. So they, um, they're very aware of the, of, of the whole situation. They're certainly not blind to it. It's, it's quite beautiful to be around. They used to like um, if Rob's stuck in bed, Boys Day, popcorn movie. Oh. Yeah, which is really <laughs> cute because what... Boys know, Day and I'm just kicking what, around somewhere. What 12, 12 and 14-year-old kid wants to sit in a bedroom with their father, you know... But they used to make a lot of fun of it. Yeah, and they don't day. just get to kick back. They sit there and feed Rob or make him a cup of tea or help scratch his nose or blow his nose. Or So for them, boys' days, being really hands-on with Dad as well. But, yeah, they tend to um, take it in their stride. Do you ever yeah. get frustrated when you're angry with them that you're like, God, I'd just love to give you a snack and a cup? No, we... I, <laughs> no, when, now they're older. Now that they're older and they're, they're, they're too quick for me, but... When they were when they were little fellas, um... in the early days when we'd go home and they'd be doing something, we were quite a united front. And often I would be in a completely different room and get a call, and I would come in, smack them on the bum, walk away, and Rob would do the reprimanding, which was crap because they were copping it from both ends, from mum, from mum, and from dad, from mum. But, yeah, but um, the beauty is they, we, were, they, were, they were more fearful of me even though you were the ones giving I know, the they've the all, always been more fearful of Rob than me. That could be true with all children yeah. and their fathers. Um, but we've been a united front, I guess, from the start. And we've never, even when we had carers in the early days trying to navigate how that all worked, we didn't employ men more so because I didn't want a father figure replacing mm. Rob. It wasn't necessarily that we just preferred women. But having that extra male in the house wasn't something that we really needed. And the there's kids... a, for this thing to work, there's a lot of different dynamics. And as the kids um, age, there's different dynamics. There's, there's yeah. the kids. There's there's me medically. There's me physically. There's me mentally and emotionally. Then there's Sarah. Then there's the marriage. Then there's the parenting. And then there's the carers, you know carers and, the and all the yep. all and the, carers um, liking each other liking the us the different so personalities that come with that and then all the different and then we're on a farm and, and we do cattle work and that's a whole nother world than just sitting so there's a lot there's a lot of dynamics yeah. that that all have to just fall into place and and click otherwise you have to have thick skin and just go well, it is what it is whatever yeah. yep today's just going to be one of them days and I've preferred having women in the house because when I get out of the shower and I'm in my room and someone accidentally walks in or, I don't know, it's just in saying that we've got a male support worker at the moment and he's really good. He's been one of our longest. But he also really has good 
boundaries. He doesn't overstep. He doesn't try and be a part of the family. He will, quite welcoming, but he doesn't try and tell the kids what they're doing in the kitchen's wrong or, yeah, he just supports Rob when he needs it. I think we're probably lucky that when we were at the station, we lived commu- like mm. such a communal life. We had a year in Dysart where we've lived alone and that's it. Mm. And weekends were spent with boys and rodeoing and so... All so it's all very communal work. anyway. Yeah. Mm. So we've never just really just been us no. living our... This is us. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I think that that's kind of also beautiful because I think now we try and live a life very independent and, and then that's that's like a path to loneliness really isn't it like if mm. you're just trying to do everything by yourself no. there's all these old real old sayings you know, it takes a community to raise a child they're all very very true and they've stood the test of time all these old sayings and I find it quite comical that everyone wants to be so individualised nowadays independent and, and individualised look- and have all their own ideals and everything else but then they still want the luxury of you know that whole, them old, those old mindsets we quite miss that that's why we were going home to the station and that's where we were going to be. It was only that the logistics and the reality of the heat and trying to get support workers to the desert and um, Rob even trying to be a part of the station when they were getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and then having brekkie and leaving and walking out the door 15 minutes later. Well, I'd only just be coming in the house and the men had just about going back out after smoke it was yeah. ridiculous for rob to get up it takes about an hour to do physio and get dressed and then be a part of it and so and you're relying on support workers to be getting up at the same time mm. and being happy then to put you to bed at 10 11 o'clock at night so um yeah all those little things came into play as to why we decided to move to queensland i'm glad yeah. you did yeah mm. <laughs> but and i guess to wrap up and you said, you know, decision-making is something that you really drive home to your boys. I was wondering if you could just tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and it goes back on what we were talking about earlier with, with the luxury of excuses, the way I was raised and the way that I'm trying to raise my boys is being man enough to live by the consequences of your decisions, um, whether they're good, bad or indifferent. Uh, you know, God only knows how many bad decisions I've made, but you've got to, you've got to, um, you've got to be able to live by those decisions. And, and, you know, some of them, some of them can, um, you know, if you don't get too caught up in it, can create a wonderful life of, of a lot of unknown and, 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 you know, spontaneous, you know, ways of living. But at the same time, whatever those decisions are, you've, you've got to be man enough to, you know, to, to suffer the consequences or enjoy the consequences, you can't go back on it, you know, and that we touched on the crystal ball effect and, and um, one of the... Mum brought a saying to me um, quite a while ago that um, nobody can go back and start a new beginning but anyone can start today and create a, a new ending and, and it's, it's so very, very true, um, you know, um, that mindset around... Um, whatever type of life you're going to live, you don't have the excuse of, you know, blaming someone else or blaming somebody else's uh, impact on your life because at the end of the day, it was your decision to allow them to, you know, be involved in the first place. And so, yeah, I mean, decisions, yeah, I think just having the courage to live by your decisions and, 
and saying, yes, it was the wrong one at the time, but it's also the same decision that got you to where you are today. Sarah, anything that you'd add to that as an indecisive person? self <laughs> <laughs> I guess just say what you're going to do and follow through with it. I think the hardest part is making the decision. And once you've done that, you can... Definitely, go, yeah. You know. We've had to, like when we made the decision to shut the butcher shop, once we made the decision, it was fine. But getting to that point, it was quite a challenge. I know, the Yeah, I yeah. And every time we'd go in there, we'd have customers telling us how lovely it all was and the meat and this and that. And we'd walk out and give each other the same look, like, what are we doing? Yeah, once we actually made that decision, the hard part was over. And we've been a little bit like that, thinking about it with with every aspect of our life, from from the rodeoing. See, it's it's always been a very definite in our in our lifestyle. If you, if you really think about it, um, okay, well we're going to, you know, we make the decision to go do the rodeoing side of life. Well, that's very definite. That's the one thing. Now we're doing it. We're in it. There's no sort of half fifty fifty. And when we went to the station, we're, we're leaving behind the mine money. We're leaving behind the rodeoing. We're going to a station. That's the decision. We've done it. And then we, you know, we're, you we're the all in. And then you put the plan, the steps in place in. to do it. Yeah. Same with our contracting. Same with everything we've done. So the reality of when we were in rehab and made the decision that we were going to go back to the station. Once um, we've got that goal or that set decision We'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah. Um, it's just deciding on which way you're gonna you're gonna do it. Because you know, even like doctors and that saying that there's no way you're gonna live on a remote property again. Um, it's it's just impossible. And I remember saying to them, not only will we, I shit, I could walk to town if I had to. Let alone you know this whole isolated myth around being isolated. What is isolated? And um, and you know and that really is. What stem doing the the Tanami track, you know, in a wheelchair from Superjack into Alice Springs? So, um, yeah, I think being definite in your decision is probably just as important as, as making it in the first place. Don't, um, you know, you can't be you can't live half a life. You've got to either be in or out. Yeah, back yourself. Mm, I think so. Mm. Having the confidence to back yourself. So true. Well, thank you so much. Uh, good deal. Thank you, Rob and Sarah. You were so generous with your time and I was absolutely enthralled listening to you both. If, like me, you want more of Rob and Sarah, you can buy the book Rob wrote with Carl Curtin, When the Dust Settles. It's available online as an ebook. If you want a hard copy, there were three left on Amazon when I last looked. Good luck. Our other option is to bombard the bookshops and publishers with requests for restocking. I support that strategy, dear listeners. I really do. Let's get another reprint happening. I'll be back next week with another episode of How Do You Decide? Until then, make good choices.